Thank you for tuning in to the Hypocritical Podcast. This week's edition is chock full of the latest in news. We've, of course, got winners and failures. And joining me this week again, Chief Marketing Officer Rick Kuahara. Hey, Elena. There's a lot to report this week, and let's just dive right in. Rick, what do you see in terms of what people need to know about? Well, you're right. There's a lot to cover. And I think one thing that has been in the news a lot lately has been ransomware. And we've been seeing it a lot uh, popping up. And recently, Emisoft uh, released a state of the ransomware report that was really interesting and showed that in 2019 that the U.S. was hit by a really unprecedented amount of ransomware attacks that impacted at least 948 government agencies, you know, educational establishments like schools, university, and of course, healthcare providers. Um, it's estimated that the cost was in excess of about $7.5 billion this year alone. So that's really crazy. Uh, of the organizations impacted, you know, there are 759 healthcare providers, and that's just up until the point where the report was made. Uh, there has actually been a couple of other attacks since that's been made. So it's even um, showing how crazy ransomware has been this year and just how much incidents have increased. And a lot of it has been putting, um, it's not just inconvenience. A lot of it really puts people's health and safety at risk. Uh, when healthcare provider is impacted by, or even, you know, government agencies. So when either of them are impacted by a ransomware attack, it can have direct effect against, you know, emergency patients uh, having to be redirected to other hospitals. Um, if medical records are inaccessible or lost, you know, that can affect, you know, someone's um, healthcare so emergency patients have to be redirected to other hospitals that can affect their care. If there's any surgical procedures that um, were scheduled, they may be, have to be canceled or tests postponed. And of course, 911 services could be interrupted due to a ransomware attack. So this is really serious when, um, and it's happening a lot this year. And we're seeing that, you know, primarily the government agencies and healthcare providers are being focused on because it's been shown that they are actually not ready for these sophisticated attacks that are coming in. Okay, there's recently also a report issued by the State Auditor of Mississippi that stated there was a disregard for cybersecurity in state government and that you know many state uh, entities are operating like the state and federal cybersecurity laws don't apply to them. So that's really a really serious indictment against how a lot of these government agencies are set up to um, protect themselves against these ransomware attacks. And when government declares a state of emergency, I think that really says something about Absolutely. how serious this is. Absolutely. And it's, you know, unfortunately, it takes a lot of these type of incident, uh, incidents to really wake up everyone to how serious um, you know, these ransomware attacks can be. People think, oh, it's not going to happen to us. And it's really not a it's really not a question anymore of, you know, if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. The thing is that, you know, we do see that ransomware attacks can be prevented, even if it's successful and it gets you that you don't have to um, pay the ransom. You don't have to be hit if you have the right um, policies and procedures in place. 
um, it's notable that in the report, you know, the banking industry really hasn't uh, reported any successful ransomware attacks. And it's not just because they weren't targeted, but they have better systems in place. Mm -hmm. Leading by Um, a good example. Yeah, it's funny, huh? You deal with people's money and they they care a lot more. (laughs) So, um, but they've, I mean, and financial industry has, is always under attack. So they, they know, they've learned um, to have, to be proactive in what Mm -hmm. they're doing. So we could definitely learn from them. Did they indicate the source of the attacks? Like, is it more so domestic or is it international? It's a great question. Um, They are, you know, international. Um, We know that it's not just U.S.-based hackers that are coming in, but it's coming from all over. So um, they are targeting the U.S. uh, in particular um, and the U.S. government agencies and healthcare just because of the success that, people are having against those um, organizations. And so that really emboldens, you know, other hackers to follow suit. So it's coming from all over. So also in the news, we're going to transition over IT and patient data. You know, obviously we've seen this so many times this year with a lot of people's information being compromised. Uh, What did we learn this week? Okay, so there's a lot of great news coming out of Capitol Hill where we are seeing a lot more government agencies uh, looking to um, really help update privacy laws and regulations. You know, as technology has leapt ahead of where we were with privacy laws, um, and there's been some gaps that has been created because of it, especially regarding, you know, patient data and your medical records. You know, everybody agrees that, you know, we want to have people have control over you know their own healthcare and especially their medical data, and so on one side you have the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT or the ONC proposing a rule that would help technology companies um, really get more access to patient data, uh, be, and that's great because it really uh, helps consumers or everyday people have access to their own data. Um, and really encouraging the flow of data and not hindering it, which a lot of people accuse uh, HIPAA regulations of doing. But on the other side, you know, there's the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives, or CHIME, which is made up of uh, CIOs in healthcare. And they, although everybody wants the sharing of data to happen and interoperability to become a reality, you know, they are hitting back against the ONC and saying that, you know, we really want that these tech companies, even if they're going to have access to data, they should have to comply with um, data blocking policies or really privacy policies, that there has to be safeguards to prevent the PHI from being misused. So this really is a blurring of the lines between health, what's considered health data and what's considered consumer data. So if your doctor were to give you your medical records, you know, they have to comply with HIPAA regulations because they're a covered entity. They're a healthcare provider. But once you have it yourself, it's your own data. And you aren't required by any HIPAA regulations to do anything. So if you were to give it to a third-party app um, and you willingly say, okay, here it is. Here's my um, records just for you to just for you to have. And, you know, maybe that app is there to help you with manager prescriptions or something like that. Mm -hmm. The app itself, once you give them your data, 
that's, that's your consumer data. It's not considered health data. So it might not fall under HIPAA anymore. Okay. So what does that app you give it to, what do they have to do with it? Mm -hmm. Do they have to follow any HIPAA regulations? You know, what are the privacy issues around this? So that's the concern that Chime is bringing up. Gotcha. That's really interesting and very important because you might not think about it, but, you know, if you have diabetes or high blood pressure or, you know, whatever, and you're inputting this data, exactly where does it go? Who's responsible? What happens if that information is compromised? Yeah. And a lot of these um, tech companies, you know, they, they're operating in good faith. You know, no one's trying to really take advantage of consumers, but without regulations in place, it could let a bad actor in. Um, because right now there's nothing really to say outside of public scrutiny to have these organizations now give the data you've given them to a third-party data aggregator without your approval. And then what are they using with doing with it? Mm -hmm. Um, on the good news is the house energy and commerce committee released an initial draft of a bipartisan privacy bill on December 18th. And the hope is that the bill is going to help close the privacy gaps across all industries and establish standards and safeguards on how all organizations are allowed to use and collect data from individuals for their business. So what would you say the takeaways are from this? Well, definitely we're seeing how fast technology goes uh, than regulations. You know, the tech world moves way faster than Washington, D.C. So we're really behind, but it's great that there are um, now discussions happening and there's movement to really um, standardize and set safeguards for how uh, patient data is being used going forward. I almost feel like that's kind of government in general, <laughs> like always trying to play catch up to enforce something <laughs> that they're yeah. like, oops, <laughs> we need to catch up to this. Yeah. And it could be good or bad. I mean, you definitely don't want regulation to slow innovation. So innovation sometimes has to happen ahead of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's great to see um, that when there are concerns happening and we, are, we want everybody's data to be you know, secure and for them to be able to control it. Um, Because in the end, you know, we're all patients. So uh, definitely it's great to see things moving in the right direction. Absolutely. And moving along also, we have another update that's related to medical devices. Yeah, so this is really interesting and kind of concerning. But key factor, researchers recently discovered a vulnerability in RSA keys and certificates used by really uh, lightweight Internet of Things devices. So that's a lot of technical talk there. So I'm going to try and break it, come back a little <laughs> Thank bit. Thank you. <laughs> um, but, I just heard letters and uh, yeah. keys. <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of think of RSA certificates as a process to secure the transfer of data uh, between different sources. And usually they're remote of each other. So they're separated. Uh, So this could include things like medical devices and implants um, where there's data going from that to a central source to help with your medical care. Uh, So the concern is that um, you're supposed to only have these uh, basically uh, 
private keys that help decrypt the data. And if you don't have these keys in place, then you're not supposed to be able to see the data. And usually that's pretty secure. But what um, key factor researchers found was that the way that uh, RSA is generating these uh, random numbers and keys, that there is actually overlap where it is not unique. So definitely this takes a lot of computing, but there is a chance that hackers could find two keys that are not completely random and therefore intercept the data transmission between these remote devices. I see. So it's not something that um, has been confirmed out in the wild yet. It's something that these key factor researchers have found. Um, but it's definitely a vulnerability that could allow a lot of medical devices to malfunction, which, of course, you know, when you're dealing with people's health, that could have really devastating effects. And so the, what's definitely something that it brings out is that medical device manufacturers really have to really think about the security while they're designing something and not just using what's out there necessarily that's as, as an open source tool they really got to think about how they can put security into the design. I would think that that would be like the first thing, you know, aside from whatever the creation is, I would think that, you know, obviously you have to first determine how secure all this is going to be. But for some, is it maybe an afterthought? It could be. Uh, we don't want to, hopefully, hopefully it's not, <laughs> but um there are definitely um, gaps. So someone who is a security, you know, cybersecurity expert in how they're designing things can be different than um, someone who is pushing forth, whose expertise might be in another area, let's mm -hmm. say. So, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's working in good faith to try and go forward. Um, and a lot of people might've thought, hey, RSA was fine. Um, but, you know, when, you know, attackers are always kind of sometimes one step ahead. And, you know, it's great that there are researchers out there who are trying to break things so that we can find out, okay, where are the holes? Um, that helps everyone in the end, but definitely something that can get improved upon for sure. Mm -hmm. What would you say are the takeaways from that example as well? I think definitely it just goes back to um, that security at, security at design going back to number one and making sure that it's integrated into the process as, you know, product development is happening, that we're always thinking about, okay, there are bad actors out there. What can we do to make sure that they're not getting in? Mm -hmm. Well, as we mentioned, we like to focus on the winners and, you know, everybody loves a little good news and that might help to move things along. So let's focus on who's winning this week. And it sounds like NYU, someone related to that, has some kind of something happening in Manhattan. Yeah, NYU Langone Health um, recently opened a biotech, incub uh, excuse me, biotech incubator in Manhattan. So they're calling it Biolabs at NYU Langone. And it's pretty exciting um, reading about it. Um, they're going to try and house more than 35 early stage biotech and life sciences companies. Um, and the aim is that it's going to help startups focus on science and innovation and move more quickly 
um, into their own spaces and not just in this, you know, little incubator. Um, and having gone through 500 startups ourselves with Palbox, uh, incubators can be great ways to just build relationships, uh, collaborate with others. And there's just a excitement in that space that can really help launch companies forward. So, so this is like a physical space where people can go and gather or is it more virtual? No, it's, it's definitely a physical space. So it's a huge, going to be a um, pretty big place in Manhattan. Um, and it'll be a space where the biolab staff can provide education and operational support for these startups and companies uh, just to help boost them along because, you know, a lot of times their expertise is in the science and not necessarily the business side of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Understandable. So, yeah. So it's great that, you know, there's going to be a place like this for these startups to go and grow and hopefully come out with the, the next big thing in biotech. All right. Now, a familiar name uh, winning this week, Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, what can you tell us about what they're doing? Yeah, earlier this year, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield launched a data innovation challenge. Um, and the idea was for the program to attract and award data-driven tools to improve access to care, improve patient engagement, and improve the care delivery and out health outcomes. It's a great uh, goal that the program has, and they just announced their winner. So Thrive uh, Earlier Detection won the Blue Cross Blue Shield Data Innovation Challenge. They just announced it. Uh, and their mission for uh, Thrive is to develop tools designed to integrate earlier cancer detection into routine medical care. So definitely hitting that ways to improve care delivery and outcomes. Um, and it sounds really exciting. I mean, I just read about it a little bit, so I don't know too much about it. Um, but it's uh, basically a liquid biopsy test to help find many cancers at an earlier stage of the disease. And as we know with um, cancer care, uh, that the earlier you can diagnose, the better it is. Mm -hmm, definitely. Wow, sounds incredible. Yeah, it's really exciting. So it'd be great to see what they can do with it when, with all the data that they'll now have access to. Uh, they get five years uh, access to Blue Cross Blue Shield data, which of course is um, de-identified. So it's not like it's individual data, it's just this aggregate group of numbers that you see. So they won't actually, Thrive won't actually know individual patient data, but um, in aggregate, a lot of this de-identified data is gonna help them move faster to get their product ready for uh, real use. So mm -hmm. exciting. Talking about, you know, utilizing something like that, it sounds a little like MRI where they would scan and then they, you know, inject a different mm, ink yeah. or whatever. So sounds very interesting. I'm very curious to learn more because, you know, we're all impacted by cancer and we've all known someone that's either been diagnosed or has passed away from cancer. So I would love to hear more about this as it develops. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on this one. This sounds very exciting. Definitely. Okay, well, we just highlighted our winners this week and props and smiles to them. And now let's also focus on those who are failing. So give us some insight into the failures. Yeah, unfortunately, there's, there's always an abundance of these. Um, so Life Labs, which is a Canadian uh, diagnostic laboratory, um, 
had to pay to retrieve data of over 15 million patients. So this was in the news. Uh, it's a big deal, just the size of it. Um, and they discovered uh, unauthorized access on November 1st. And they know that the data affected um, includes names, addresses, email logins, date of birth, health card numbers, which is like their health for their health insurance, and even lab results. Um, wow. They didn't specifically say that it was ransomware, but we know that they had to pay to get access to the data back. So most likely it's a ransomware attack. Mm, and they didn't say how much they paid? No, as of now, I haven't seen anything. I'm sure, you know, this will come out later. But um, yeah, it's just really unfortunate. It goes to show no matter how big you are, uh, you know, ransomware can hit anyone. So again, going back to what we talked about earlier, just being ready for it. Mm -hmm. And there's another failure in regards to health data as well. Yeah. So this one shows that government agencies are not exempt. Uh, so the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services um, had to pull its blue button 2.0 API offline after they found a coding error potentially exposed uh, beneficiary data for about 10,000 patients. Um, so they call this blue button 2.0 API, the BB 2.0. Uh, basically, it's used by Medicare beneficiaries to authorize third-party apps to access their Medicare, Medicare claims data. So if people have had to gone on to like a insurer or something to see their Medicare claims and um, manage that, they often have to log in. Um, a lot of times that company that you're using, third-party, they call on the CMS, the blue button API to um, to get the information from the CMS. So a bug was detected and thankfully they found it, um, but still it's determined that, you know, the bug could have potentially exposed the data for everybody. Mm. And really unfortunate, um, they've launched an investigation, uh, but uh, right now they, they haven't really determined how much data has been exposed officially yet. Uh, hopefully we'll get that out soon and people can be made aware, but really bad situation that we're seeing, you know, anybody can be affected. Like you gotta be really, really careful when mm -hmm. we're, we're dealing with patient data. And it looks like the coding error was detected in January of 2018. Yeah. So a long time that it's, it's been there and we don't know if people have actually been exploiting it but it's great that once they saw that that error was there that they've took it down mm -hmm. and um what do you see as far as the takeaways from this example definitely that um you know we see that better testing is needed because this is something that they could have been caught in um qa which is one of the steps you do when you're um, you know, pushing code to uh, to become live for it to be used. You usually go through a, a QA test or quality assurance testing process. Um, and in this case, uh, it could have been done better. I think the CMS officials determined that 
um, a comprehensive review actually was not completed and the coding error could have been caught earlier. Wow. So don't just assume that everything's going to be okay and run with it. You want to definitely make sure that everything has been tested and it's secure. Yeah. And luckily for CMS that it was actually not their employee, but a developer found the error uh, because they weren't just assuming things were fine with the API that was provided by the CMS. They said they were doing their own QA mm -hmm. and found the error, which is great. Excellent. All right. And also making news, New Orleans, the latest city to be hit with ransomware. And we've been talking about ransomware uh, this whole podcast because, you know, it's been very prevalent. What did we learn about this? Yeah. So New Orleans had to declare a state of emergency um, because its network was hit with a ransomware attack. So they, they think that it was a phishing attack that compromised the credentials of a city worker, which led to the ransomware getting deployed. Um, the ransomware itself was identified as RIOC, um, and that was used in five other successful attacks that we know of on city governments that resulted in $2 million in ransom. So we don't know if it's the same person attacking uh, the same attacker, um, but we do know that, like we said before, if something's successful, other people are going to do it over and over again. And unfortunately, we see this particular ransomware um, resulting in $2 million in ransom being paid out. Uh, thankfully, though, New Orleans didn't pay. They were prepared. So just like how we saw Life Labs wasn't and they had to pay a ransom, New Orleans, was they were ready. And they, they didn't have to um, pay anything out. Interesting. So it's a failure, but it's also partially a win as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's great to see that they were ready for this to happen. They had the training ready and they had the systems in place to make sure that there wasn't um, really uh, that the that damage was mitigated. Mm -hmm. And so would we assume that this was something via email? Yeah, if they suspect it's a phishing attack. So usually that's where um, it's a malicious email that's being sent. So one of their city workers got this email. They clicked on something probably, and that downloaded the ransomware virus and got deployed out into the network. A lot to learn from these examples. Yeah. All right. Well, last week we had a very comprehensive interview with Christine Sublet and Rick. Tell us, you know, what we're going to hear this week because she was just a wealth of knowledge. Christine, uh, like you said, wealth of knowledge. She was great to talk with, and we covered a lot of top, a lot of ground. So we had to actually split her interview into two parts. And in this last piece, uh, we talk about mitigating human error in your cybersecurity plan. And also a little bit about HIPAA, has, how HIPAA has to change in 2020. All right, take a listen. A lot of these cyber attacks we're seeing hitting healthcare, like those ransomware attacks, are heavily focused on people as you know the initial threat vector. So, mm -hmm. you know, how much can be done, you know, when you're doing your planning about mitigating that risk, or can anything be done? Even one of the things, or, or there's really two things that I think are are probably the the top two things that companies can do here, um, well, actually three. One is, um, you know, from a technology perspective, is 
you know, put in place some type of technology, some type of filtering capability that can actually identify um, uh, these types of, you know, you know, phishing or other social engineering type emails that are trying mm-hmm. to come into the organization. Because you're right, that's like the number one threat vector right now. And so if we could, you know, at least stop some of these and if we can use, you know, threat intelligence and, and um, indicators of compromise to, to filter out these email addresses and, and other things, you know, we, we, we would have a, we'd, we, we would at least have a leg up. Now, it's not going to stop everything, right? So we do have to train our workforce. And so, you know, I think there's two things I would do with the workforce. One is I would train, and there's some great security awareness programs out there to train individuals on um, how to recognize different types of social engineering attacks. Um, You know, certainly all social engineering attacks are not um, phishing or, you know, types of phishing attacks, but they are by far the vast majority. And um, and so it's really, you know, the primary way that a lot of the um, uh, account and credential compromises take place, as well as ransomware, are coming in off of uh, some type of email and, and helping your, your workforce understand how to recognize them and what to do if they suspect they've received one so that they do make good decisions about what that next step might be. Um, the other is to test and, and so there are, there are some, also some great programs out there uh, and technologies for testing your workforce. Um, and, you know, so it allows you to set up uh, particular types of social engineering emails and tests to actually um, test the workforce to see if you catch any of them clicking on things or responding to things that they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And I have, I have seen some organizations on the first test, you know, they'll have a, 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 a click rate of like 70% of their workforce clicks on this first test. Um, and maybe wow. 30% of them actually enter in their credentials, right? I know, wow. it's just staggering. <laughs> and, and I see numbers like this and I think, oh God, <laughs> this is not good, right? Um, but you know, once you've, you um, identify these users who've clicked on it and the users who've then also enter credentials and then you, know, you have further training for these folks and you explain to them what you know, again, this is, this is why we're doing this. You know, it's, it's not a punitive thing. They're not in trouble, but let us help you understand how to identify these things so you don't do this when it's real. And what I've seen is um, the, the amount of improvement between the first test and the second test is just, it, I mean, it's really significant. It, I think that one company I'm thinking of where they had 70% uh, click on it and 30% in their credentials, the second time they had less than 10% click on it and 1% in their credential. And so to me, that was worth every cent of the training. Mm-hmm you know, and the testing. Um, and, and, and the fantastic thing is, is these programs, um, you know, for testing and training uh, your workforce on social engineering type attacks are actually really uh, inexpensive. So it's probably one of the most cost efficient ways to reduce your risk as a company. That's, that's great. So I do have one follow-up question that we can mm-hmm. kind of weave in. It kind of goes back to your first answer. <clears throat> um, it struck me when you said it was written in 1999. Um, <laughs> Boy, so, right? <laughs> so how much does HIPAA have to evolve? I mean, there's high tech, you know, and everything, but how does, how does HIPAA have yeah. to evolve to meet the changing technology? So um, HIPAA has 
great opportunity for evolution. Let me let me say that to start with, um, because exactly that, right? The the security rule was written in 1999. It went into effect in 2005, and the privacy rule was written in I think 1996 and went into effect in 2003. And as as you mentioned, there was a High Tech Act which did update some of this, and but primarily um, on the security side, what it did is it just pushed the same sets of security requirements from the business associate to the covered entity. Um, and before the High Tech Act, the, the business associate only had those requirements if um, they were contractually obligated uh, based on that contract with the covered entity customer. And in many cases, they were already, but this also made it, you know, part of the, the legal uh, requirement as well. The, um, you know, HIPAA was designed um, to address a fairly limited uh, set of healthcare data, right? It doesn't, it certainly was never designed to cover all healthcare data. And so we have a pretty uh, significant gap in our regulatory framework from a healthcare data perspective. And HIPAA was never intended to cover um, this massive set of, of healthcare data. And then you think about how that world has expanded mm -hmm. um, in the last 20, 25 years, and it looks even less adequate today. Um, so there are plans. Um, from, uh, at HHS to um, issue um, some changes to or, or update the, the, the HIPAA regulations. And I believe they're due out first quarter of 2020. So not, not long. Um, and of course, then we'll have um, uh, opportunity to comment um, on these proposed, proposed rule changes. Um, but, you know, if if it if it stays fairly narrow, which HIPAA really is fairly narrow, because again, it doesn't cover most healthcare data. It really covers this small subset, um, and and you know from a, it doesn't cover you know any consumer information, any consumer healthcare data. So when you use all of these different apps that are now you know collecting data from devices or input by patients or you know uh, imported from a record you download from your healthcare provider, none of that's covered by HIPAA, and so. You know, it, it's sitting on your phone. In many cases, it's uploading to uh, a cloud environment from an app provider where you probably know almost nothing about how they use your data mm -hmm. and or how they share it. Um, and um, currently, HIPAA doesn't cover any of that. And so the way I view, you know, HIPAA and the, the what will be, you know, proposed changes is unless it's expanding the scope of the data that it's regulating, um, we still will have some significant gaps. And so I, you know, I, I don't know that HIPAA is the right place to address this versus um, an overarching privacy law. Um, it, you know, some states are, are trying to address this from a state level, uh, California being one and the leader on this. The, you know, our, our CCPA goes into effect um, January 1st, mm -hmm. but it, it also has significant carve outs. So, you know, it doesn't cover nonprofits, it doesn't cover um, uh, HIPAA covered data. So HIPAA covered data is exempt from it. And it also doesn't cover any organization with revenue under 25 million. And so, it, you know, it's the, if, if we want to really address um, privacy law and pr healthcare privacy um, 
from an overarching perspective, you know, probably a federal re regulation is our best approach. And um, it will, it remains to be seen whether or not any of the proposed changes in, in HIPAA will address it. But I, 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 I frankly, I, I suspect not. Right. And just to clarify, like when you're saying like it doesn't cover mm -hmm. consumers, you mean like when a consumer downloads their own or has their own data, there's nothing that is, it's basically free, like for anybody after that, there's no regulation as far as like if you're, like you said, the Fitbit or something like that, they're not a covered mm -hmm. entity, right? That So they're not covered under the scope of HIPAA. Is that what you're referring to? So, yeah. So what I said is that it's co consumer data is not covered. Right. So, okay. right. So when yeah, a, sure. if a customer enters data into their, you know, into an app on their phone, that's not, you know, a HIPAA covered app, then right. it's not covered by HIPAA. Or if they download, even if a patient downloads their record from a covered entity, you know, from a, a healthcare provider, mm -hmm. and then they upload it to an app, it's not covered. Right. And so yeah. it, it, this is why HIPAA is so confusing to, to people is that, um, you know, the same set of data could be covered. So your, your, your medical record is covered when it's sitting with your doctor, but once you download it and do something with it yourself, it's not covered. Exactly. Right. And, and so that's, yeah baffling to most people and including me and so, right? and so it's it's a question of you know should should privacy protections and security protections follow or security requirements follow the data and you know there are a lot of us who think that maybe yes and you know but at the very least my primary concern is that you know as we as we look at appropriate security controls for healthcare data, regardless of whether it's covered by HIPAA or not. We're, we're implementing appropriate controls, but also doing it in a way that does not make it difficult for individuals and their families to uh, receive uh, and um, share their data as they wish. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, you know, this is about as personal a set of data as you can imagine. And people should have the ability to do exactly what they want with it. And to hear more, you can hear an excerpt from the first half of the interview from our podcast last week at powbox.com. And you can also view the transcript there as well. Now we're headed into the predictions. You know, now we're in 2020, so happy new year. And what do you think we're gonna see this year? Well, definitely we want to see um, is that HIPAA is going to change in 2020. Uh, whether that is another piece of regulation coming in and adding on to it. But like, you know, Christine was talking about and what we um, were talking about earlier with the news regarding Chime uh, is that there are going to be significant changes in privacy regulations uh, as we deal with uh, the rise of consumerism in healthcare which, you know, kind of makes a fine line between helping people protect their data, but also not limiting their access to it. Yeah, so a lot of things in the works. Uh, we see movement, and that's going to really affect everybody. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that pans out in 2020. But prediction, 100%, we're going to see some changes in regard to HIPAA and privacy in 2020. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to the HIPAA Critical Podcast. For more information, you can log on to our website, powbox.com. That's P-A-U-B-O-X.com. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.